This is Governor Larry Hogan, and you're listening to the Conduit Street Podcast, your go-to source for news and insight on Maryland policy and politics. Hello and welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with my co-host Michael Sanderson. Michael, how are you today? All good. How are you? I'm well, thanks. And coming back on the show, Natasha Mayhew. Natasha, how are you today? Doing good. Excellent. Today on the podcast, we will talk about the legacy of House Speaker Michael Bush. We'll discuss the session recap from Mako's perspective, talk about some of the big issues that were still alive on Signy Die, and we'll discuss the session of Glasses Half Full. Michael and Natasha, obviously we need to start with Speaker Bush. Uh, unfortunately and tragically, he passed away the day before Sine Die on Sunday. He was the longest serving speaker in the history of the Maryland House of Delegates, and he's a 40-year veteran of the Anne Arundel County Parks and Rec Department. A lot of people forget about that, but right. let's talk about Speaker Bush and, and his legacy. Well, it's it's enormous. I mean, to start out, and that became really clear even over the last couple weeks of session when his health was ailing and he started missing some time on the floor. Just his absence on the floor is itself conspicuous because it's his voice and his cadence is what we all associate the House of Delegates with. And mm-hmm. I mean, the, the two of you, you've never known anybody other than Mike Bush to be the speaker and the leader and the voice of the House of Delegates. There's tons of people with plenty more experience than you two right. who would say the same thing. I mean, 16 years serving as the speaker um, says an awful lot. And, um, I don't know the the tributes and comments from his colleagues and his his fellow leaders in the house were really really moving. Yeah, and I th- I heard a lot of people using the term coach, and I had heard that term associated with Speaker Bush before, but I never really understood it until I heard about you know those tributes on the floor and everyone around town talking about how he really was a coach, how he was a mentor, a leader, a brilliant tactician, and he really knew how to get the best out of you, right? I mean, I mean, first of all, he was literally a coach. He was. So we, I mean, we know that, you know, as, as a young man, he was one heck of an athlete and he made a living as a football player and, and so forth. So, I mean, so this was, this was his calling card early in life and he went on to actually be a coach in the schools. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's not that this came out of whole cloth, but when people were reflecting back on how do you encapsulate everything that Mike Bush meant to them in the organizations they were part of or him as a leader or as a mentor, uh, that word coach kept popping up and it sort of like synthesizes all those different things meant in a very, very positive light uniformly. This is across the aisle. I mean, we saw this from people all across the state, people who served years and years ago, popping up out of the woodwork with stories and photographs and memories of their time working with and around Mike Bush. He did. He touched so many people. He really did. And I mean, he was a regular at our our conferences, of course. Oh, for sure. He was certainly always willing to listen to our concerns. And obviously, he he was a county employee for so many years. And just he cared so deeply about the residents of Maryland and policy in Maryland. And you could really tell 
And unfortunately, when, when folks pass away, a lot of the time you start to hear those stories more and more and appreciate them more. Yeah. And for me, that endearing term means a lot more now than it did before his death. But, but he, he was definitely the guy. He was a, a very frequent guest with like the Mako board of directors or come mm-hmm. to our legislative committee and so forth. And it would be a rare circumstance for him to come to a meeting or a face-to-face like that with even a single sheet of paper in his hand. Uh, we'd schedule him for an hour. He'd sit at the front of the room, cup of coffee, and just start talking. Mm-hmm. And right. we would go from, we'd talk about the budget for a while, then there'd be a health insurance crisis, and then there's a liability issue. And then he would just go down the, the list of the things that Mako cares about. And then he'd mention, oh, I know you over there, you're from coal country. We're worried about that coal issue too. And we got that thing down at Calvert Cliffs we're trying to take care of. And he just worked the room eye to eye with people. And this wasn't a matter of I've got my talking points and I've got good staff who prepared all this sort of stuff. He just kind of understood his station. He, you know, you're, you're elected in the House of Representatives to represent one district, but he also understood that as the Speaker of the House and the presiding officer of you know the People's Chamber, he felt an obligation to be down in everybody's weeds. He did, and, and I think you know on that note, his campaign slogan on, on the last election, at least on his signs, was "Maryland Speaker, our delegate." And mm-hmm. here locally mm-hmm. in Annapolis, I think that speaks volumes for yeah. what you were just saying. He understood the yeah. issues across the state. And he knew everyone across the state and he knew the districts, but back at home, he fought for Annapolis probably harder than anyone has ever fought for Annapolis. Well, we're going to see a lot of those signs up at up out in front of houses in and around Annapolis over the next several days as uh, his services commence. So all of that, obviously the day before Sine Die, it led to quite a unique day in, here in Annapolis on Sine Die. Usually you see a lot of parties and a lot of fanfare. They drop the balloons from the ceiling at the General Assembly. Still, the parties went on, but it seemed like the tone was a lot different uh, yeah. you know, than previous signy dies. It was really a, a b- bittersweet end to the session mm-hmm. where, you know, um, certainly a lot of um, the events still going on, but but always, um, you know, in his spirit right. and, you know, noting mm-hmm. just how much of a presence he had in Annapolis and that being such a big day for the end of the session. Um, it, it was a, it was a very emotional day, a lot to take in that mm-hmm. day. You know? I mean, I mean, the the whole ninety day structure is built to have an enormous tension release at the end. That ninetieth day is supposed to be hurry, hurry. Then you then you you know, you you drop the gavel at midnight. You say it's all over, and then it literally is all over. If your bill hasn't passed, there's no hearing tomorrow. There's no other motions. It's over. You come back next year with a new bill number and a new sheet of paper, and that mentality is really deeply embedded with people who do this kind of policy work. So whether you're doing it for a living mm-hmm. or whether you're just an advocate who's been following something along the process, you never know until the 90th day and everybody has that day circled on the calendar. Suddenly it, it felt awkward to feel like, you know, people. Right. you, you want to high five, you right. want to shake hands, you want to congratulate one another or commiserate over your misfortune and so forth. And all of that felt a half step off this year. And, and that's, you know, it, it's a tribute, it's a tribute to him and his family and his commitment. Um, but I think, I think people in, in general handled it well. And there were, there, you know, there's a lot of a good feeling and, and folks, you know, got, you know, they, they got through it. So, right. Yeah. yeah, I think it was cathartic, right? For you know, for people to be yeah, in town yeah. and be able to talk to each other about it, um, it certainly was cathartic. But it was an, an interesting signy die. 
Nonetheless, sine die did go on. The General Assembly uh, has adjourned for 2019. And for MAKO, let's talk a little bit about a session recap from our perspective. Let's first get into our initiatives. The first one here, Next Generation 911. This is a multi-multi-year process. We've been working on this issue for many years. Last year, we got a commission convened. They made some recommendations. And this year was really the, the first step in bringing Next Generation 911 to Maryland as far as a, as far as a, uh, a new fee structure and the ability to upgrade to the technology that we're going to need to get there. And that bill passed, so a big win for counties in general. There. Yeah, and I, I think one of the really great things about um, the passing of that bill is that it leaves no county behind. Right. So everyone um, is on the path now um, to um, getting to next gen 911. Um, you're not going to have one area with an old antique right. system while everyone else gets the new flashy things. And yeah, and that was certainly, be able to better communicate with Certainly the way it was signed. Right. So all boats can rise together. Mm-hmm. There's more work to do in this commission um, on the rollout, the governance, and, and whatnot. But the big news here is that we are taking a major step forward for next gen 911 in Maryland. That's a it's a really important thing for public safety. So we had a lot of people put a ton of time mm-hmm. into this, but it was that kind of issue that really took that. If 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 it had been a matter of educating senators and delegates on the deep details, um, that's that's a really tough uh, that's a tough uh, lift. Mm-hmm. But the idea of look at the roster of people who got together and sorted through this stuff and made this long list of unanimous recommendations. And you've got business interests and you've got public safety interests. You've got the kind of professionals in procurement and finance all talking about how they thought this through. That's what gave this the veneer. And you look at the votes. This wasn't a split. This wasn't a close call. We were not yeah. biting our nails on this. This was this was a layup. By the time all that preliminary work went in, and that that's that's hats off to to Senator Kagan, Delegate Jackson, uh, Delegate Krebs, Senator Riley as the lead sponsors of these bills, and also the key legislative players on that work group, uh, but all the commission members who put in. Oh, I, I couldn't calculate how many hours. You don't even want to try. Right. <laughs> don't even want to try. Yeah, it was it was an awful lot of work, but it came together exactly the right way. Absolutely, it did. And let's get to state commitment to school funding. This was an initiative. And quite frankly, we we developed this initiative when we thought this was going to be the big Kerwin lift, right, in 2019. Turned out that it wasn't the big lift, but I think we can still count this as a win for Mako. I mean, the year went well. I mean, we've we've covered, I think, most of the nuts and bolts of the now blueprint. I guess is the is the term of art. So it's the blueprint for Maryland's future, education blueprint, and so forth. But this is the beginnings of this process. We knew this was sort of the down payment funding and the beginnings of policy. Uh, the, the legislation this year, as it came in, was was a pretty easy sell for county governments. There was an incentive. It was, mm-hmm. you know, a few carrots, no sticks as far as the counties are concerned to move in the direction of some investment in your teachers, in particularly on the low end. Right, right. So a lot of state funding. Obviously, we know there's a big bill coming next year. But um, stay tuned. Obviously, this, things are going to change in the interim. We'll have a funding group that will go over how – the state and the locals are going to split these costs, uh, major costs coming. But for this year, the state certainly bumped up its funding uh, for schools. So that that was in line with our initiative. Let's talk about school construction. Michael and Natasha, the House passed a bill that would have provided $2.2 billion over the next six years to supercharge school construction. That bill did not clear the Senate. It took a more fiscally conservative approach. Still, though, $500 million for the next year. That's nothing to, to scoff at. Right. It's a it's a 
that's the biggest single year commitment we've ever seen to school construction. Mm -hmm. And you know, we've got, we've got folks from multiple jurisdictions who just have, they have their map ready to go. You sit down with the leadership in Baltimore County. And the first thing they do is unravel this map. And they're like, we need this project, this one, this one, this one, this one. They rally the numbers. These are the ones we have to pay off that we've already built and we're doing the debt service on. And they run you a tape real quick. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, Prince George's County has their same numbers, places with old schools, places that have growth or need rebuilds or need you know safety improvements and so forth the list just goes on and on so we know that there's an unmet need in school construction. We know that there are counties who want to take up their side of this. Um, the panel of county leaders who sat in the Senate saying, you know, we hope you can get this done was an impressive showing. I, I think you may come away with a sense of this isn't a, a, an if it's an exactly what and exactly when kind mm -hmm. of debate. It certainly seems that way. And then Natasha, talk to us about medically assisted treatment in jails. We talked about that previously on the podcast. What's going on there? Right. So that bill um, passed. And so MAKO supported. Um, it was a, a really um, good effort from all the stakeholders involved, the sponsors, Delegate Barron and Senator West, um, through uh, works of the work group and really trying to work together to bring it to a path forward, the bill ended um, with a pilot. Um, so it, it starts with four county jails and then um, over the course of a couple of years phases in um, to um, all the jails in the states being able to provide medication-assisted treatment to their inmates so, and Baltimore City. Right, right. So, right. so it's a tricky issue that faces every one of our jails, and we know we have a problem with mental health and substance abuse in our local jail population. We knew that the fiscal effect was part of the problem with the bill, right. and so they winnow that down, turn it into sort of a pilot project with a few jurisdictions and sort of a – you know, a roadmap to get all the way across over some time. That was a running theme this year with legislation that had fiscal effects. So, you know, this is one thing that a lot of people signed up for as a priority. A big, an uncertain but potentially pretty big fiscal effect on the state to, to say suddenly we're going to provide this and it's going to be a state responsibility everywhere. So, okay, you do it in bits and pieces. That was emblematic of what we saw on other fiscal issues, too. Right, including another one of our initiatives, core funding for health departments. And I think that certainly fell victim to the fiscal notes. And I think everybody could agree this is a great bill. This is very much needed. But anything with a fiscal note this year, as you mentioned, uh, had to get extra scrutiny. And there was just no money this year to, to do this. And Natasha, I know you worked this bill really hard, and I know you got that feedback, but I think this is something that we're going to continue to push, and obviously it's very much needed in our local health department. Right, right. And what was hard about um, this bill was that um, it was all about funding. So whereas when you're talking about medication-assisted treatment jails and there's ways to work through how can you phase this in or um, make changes to the program, um, restoring the uh, core funding for the local health departments was a significant change to a state formula, mm -hmm. meaning that it wasn't just a one-year thing. This would change it for years to come. And so um, certainly it was it, given that 
there were state revenue write downs mm-hmm. and other. Yeah, that, that seemed like the big <laughs> tipping point around mm-hmm. town. That uh, around the time, about a week or so before the official revenue write down, mm-hmm. we started hearing. I know, I know, you were hearing this on the health mm-hmm. bill um, in another committee. I was hearing on some transportation issues where we we liked bills, but they had a grant component or something along those lines. We said, well, you know, this will be really helpful technical funding for A, B, and C, and so forth. And you know, right around town, the, the winds started changing, and people started saying, well, you know, that bill that has the the two definition changes on the million dollar. Grant Grant, I think maybe the definition changes can go and the grant's going to come out. Right. And we started seeing that kind of surgery happening one by one by one on a bunch of different bills. There wasn't any way to excise out the money out of our local health funding right. bill because it really was a funding <laughs> bill. And so it ends up just, you know, dying for lack of a vote. Um, I don't, th- you know, it's not like there was a consensus saying it's a bad idea. No, it's not just, at all. It's just, you know, sort of wrong timing. Right, right. Fell victim to being. Bad timing. And then, of course, this year, it seemed like there was all the money was going to education. And, and maybe in the future, Michael, yeah. with the Kerwin or the blueprint bill, that that could be a recurring theme here in Annapolis. It certainly seems like it's set up that way. And, and you know, that's going to be part of our strategic conversation when we talk with health officers about their funding challenges and with a county leadership about what, you know, what things should MAKO focus on. I think we have to we have to think in terms of if if a Kerwin bill is going to pass in the next session and make a big commitment for the next decade, it looks like that you know, the structure might very well be that's the first mouth you feed in the nest. So there may not be room for more baby birds to continue that torture mm. analogy. We shall see. <laughs> and one more major issue that Mako was involved with heavily this year, Natasha, small cell wireless sighting. We've talked extensively about that on mm-hmm. the podcast as well. What happened there? It seems like a big win for us. Yeah, yeah. So our community coalition bill, as well as the industry's um, bill, were both sent to summer study. Um, this was a significant win for us. Um, really, we want Maryland to proceed with 5G, um, but with communities in control and with right. community oversight um, and involvement in the process. And it's happening now, and we'll continue to do that um, without a statewide bill being necessary. Yeah. But you'll definitely see this as a priority for local governments for the you know for the next couple of years or so. Mm-hmm. We think this, this technology is going to be showing up, and the companies are going to be knocking on the doors of counties and municipalities saying, okay, you know, we need to deploy. These are the places we need to go. How do we get there? We're just we're just glad that it's going to be the county who gets to say, right. "All right, let's let's make this fit." And by the way, over here we've undergrounded the utilities. Let's be respectful of that area. And over here we've got poles that are colored green. Can we do green mm-hmm. stuff like that? Is going to be within our control. We're going to get the service, but we'll get it in a way that doesn't upend the neighborhood. Yeah, and I have to say, every day it seems like I see an article about a municipality or a county developing regulations for small cell sightings. So certainly. Counties and municipalities are continuing to work on developing these regs and making sure that they're able to do it with community input and bringing the the major providers to the table as well and just working this out locally. Exactly. Excellent. So let's go ahead and take a break there. When we come back, we will talk about the 2019 session of the General Assembly being a session of glasses half full. Also, we'll look ahead, talk about things that we're looking forward to, all that and more after the break.
Welcome back to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canelli back here with Michael Sanderson and Natasha Mayhew. And Michael and Natasha, since we last spoke and since our listeners last heard from us last week, not a whole lot has changed policy-wise, but we did talk about a number of issues that were lingering for Signy Die. Michael, I know you, you you have an issue with Signy Die. Signy Die, really? I mean, that's sort of that's sort of the Americanized pronunciation of the Latin term. I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not even Catholic to be able to get get go deep on the on on the, the Latin. But you know, Signy Die is sort of you know, the difference between adjourning on Tuesday and reconvening on Wednesday. The whole idea is you adjourn without a future date. So you know, that's yeah. that's the literal definition. For some reason, we've we've bastardized the term into signy die and that's how everybody says it so you sound like you know you sound like you got a stick somewhere if you're uh, saying it the other way okay sine die so no, 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 no. <laughs> oh, all right God. so back to signy die we're right, fine. Right, Sorry. Right. Yeah. go with the crowd be that guy walking around go with the crowd right, yeah go right. with the crowd right go with the crowd all right so in in total the general assembly passed more than 850 bills this session that's out of the approximately 2500 bills that were introduced so obviously a lot of legislation a lot of work went in here some of the big storylines on Signy Die, we know that Pimlico was still out there, and we had said we don't expect much to happen here. I think right after we recorded last week, there was this deal that was all of a sudden coming into the table. <laughs> and let's talk a little bit about that. It ultimately failed, but it was a big conversation on Signy Die. So, so I mean, much ado about nothing in the end, but there there was a moment of much ado here yes. where suddenly – I mean, the, you know, the idea looming in the background was what do we do for the highest profile horse racing event in Maryland, the Preakness at Pimlico? And the, the, the operators of Pimlico and, and a big work group that who looked at that area have come up with this big and candidly pretty expensive plan of how you could, could make a big investment in the Pimlico racetrack and the surrounding area as sort of a big economic development investment, but also designed Keep the Preakness there, make it into a venue that would be more of a, a destination, and let's do some revival in that part of Baltimore. I mean, a price tag up in the hundreds of millions of dollars, so that's a, a big thing to do. The operators of of the tracks, oddly enough, it's the Stronach Group working with the Maryland Jockey Club who basically own both Pimlico and Laurel Racetrack. Their plan was basically let's make the big investments at Laurel and use that as the centerpiece facility for Maryland. And between the lines and not particularly coded was let's pick up the Preakness out of Baltimore and move it down the road to Laurel Racetrack. So that's what got gets everybody all ginned up and fired up over this issue. Suddenly, I guess it was on Friday, we started hearing word that this idea had been floated of a, a giant investment in the Laurel in the Laurel track, as long as comparable funds were sent to the Pimlico area. Right. 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 To that neighborhood and, and so that, that redevelopment. Yeah. So that, that, that sort of opened the door to some sort of grand bargain with an even bigger price drag, but um, potentially you know, maybe it would have meant the, meant the Preakness moves, but you get an economic revitalization that's not around horse racing, but is in the area that would be vacated by the by the Pimlico track. So essentially you wouldn't right. leave that area behind. Right. I mean, and that's that, that's been sort of the tagline is 
that if, if the Preakness leaves Baltimore, it's another blow to a city that can't really suffer another blow. Right. So and, and anyway, I mean, this idea bubbled up and I think, you know, in a day's time, it looked like it was dying of its own weight. So it ends up being you don't have any progress on the super track plans for Laurel. You don't have any particular progress on the revitalization plans in and around Pimlico for the Preakness. There's nothing that's changed in the state law that that says the Preakness has to be in Baltimore. So we have we have basically status quo and Pimlico continues to rot. So we will uh, most certainly it's very likely that we will see another bill next year. We'll continue this conversation, but yes, that that bill died and another bill that was lingering out there was UMMS reform. That's the University of Maryland Medical System. As you have heard in the news, there's been a lot of controversy there. And this bill, really, a lot of folks were saying this is Mike Bush's legacy. This is the last bill that was passed that was introduced by the speaker. This bill passed on CNADA, um, very much expected, but still, you know, it was out there lingering around and there was some discussion, but the bill ultimately passed. And it had to. I mean, there wasn't any. There wasn't any drama here. This it wasn't like uh, these were close votes. I think it was a unanimous vote in both chambers, and everybody rallied around the legislation. I think the interesting angle here is there are a pretty fair number of other bodies out there that are sort of quasi-governmental. I mean, the UMMS entity was set up with appointments through the state government, even though it had really been spun off as a private entity. And that, I think, is, I mean, how many different economic development corporations and, you know, I mean, other things that are out there that are similarly situated, they're somewhere in a middle Quasi, ground between right, right. public and private where, you know, you'll have reporters asking questions. Well, hold on. What about Public Information Act? What about, I mean, do I get access to your documents? Can I come attend your meetings? Can right. I see your minutes? Who made the motion? You know, I want to see financial disclosure for all your board members. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that is coming up in the UMMS debate that the next step is probably enterprising reporters saying, okay, well, you know, we turn over this stone and we found stuff what else we what got? else you got right and right I, and i there was conversation on the floor about that like this is for one board but we know there are other ones out there that are operating in this way maybe not you know with all the controversy but we should address those too ultimately though this is just the ums bill but right. i think you're right i mean obviously this is an issue that won't go away and as more enterprising reporters continue to dig you'd have to think they're going to find more situations like this one so anyone want to Anyone want to take the other side of a bet that Governor Hogan will have a bill in for reform of quasi-governmental units for I, next year's legislative I package? Not, I will not, not take that bet. <laughs> That's, That sounds like a great fit for the accountability in government efforts that the governor is frequently interested I'm in. I'm sure they're writing that bill right now. <laughs> okay. That was non-controversial. There was a lot of controversial with this next bill, clean energy bill. This is a bill that would require the state's Electric utilities acquire half of their energy from renewable sources like wind and solar by the year 2030. This was fascinating. I mean, this was really, it popped out of the last second. We heard the debate throughout uh, the weekend, really, when they were talking about this. But then on Monday, everything came to a head. I mean, mean, the consensus around town was the Senate had moved the bill and the House had just decided this is a bill for this term, but probably not this year. 
There was, I mean, and the Senate had moved the bill weeks ago, right? right. <laughs> and, and so, I mean, there, were, there had been plenty of time for something to happen in the House, and then I, I think it was was it on, I think it was on Saturday morning that the that the House suddenly popped through their version of the bill and got that moving, and so everyone's scratching their head trying to figure out is this is this for real? Or it's like is the this? bill had a second life, right? Yes, <laughs> exactly, right. Yeah. You know, I mean, April's the time of year; these yeah. things happen over the weekend, so. Um, and anyhow, that was, you know, that's, that was a strange circumstance and a, an interesting twist. Even into the last day, I don't think many people knew, knew whether this was really, you know, just going to be a partial effort and the bill would make it back with changes. Um, and, and that those changes would be enough to continue the conversation into next year, which is kind of what we thought the House wanted to be the outcome. Um, but I mean, the, the differences were substantive, too. Yeah, I mean, the, the the Senate removed the trash incinerators as from being eligible for subsidies for providing clean energy. That was a contentious debate. They took it out. And, and what, uh, I mean, that was I mean, the, the, this was a decision on the floor right, of the Senate right. to pull out waste to energy as I get the term of art is tier one. Tier right. One. So mm-hmm. they take it out of tier one, no longer eligible for these these subsidy credits and so forth. And when that motion was made on the floor, it got I forgot, 33 votes. This wasn't a 24, 23 squeaker. Mm-hmm. This was a, a sizable supermajority went with that and said, yeah, let's get that out of there. So that was the Senate's pretty strong position on what to do here. Then the House moves the bill and says, leave them in. Leave them in and let's <laughs> include a nuclear study, right? We'll put that language in as well. And I don't know, I, I, as the bill got back to the Senate, there was a lot of discussion. It really went down to the wire. There was a lot of debate, including a mini filibuster. That led to a vote to limit debate. Then the bill was special ordered by the Senate president. Right. And we're, it's like 10 o'clock. It's up to, right? Yeah, we're up to, we're up to 9, 30, 10 o'clock right. at night on Monday, the last time. I mean, this is, this is typical last night of session drama. The bill's on the floor of the Senate, and then suddenly there's questions being asked, and you realize there's tactics going on and, and stuff like that. That special order motion was peculiar because frequently, let's make this bill an order of business for later tonight. Frequently, that is code speak for your bill's dead. Especially <laughs> when it comes from the president of the Senate. I mean, right. That's kind of <laughs> what we were thinking. He's, he's got the gavel in hand. He says, here's what we're going to do. Yeah. Right. But, but the motion, it was peculiar. You don't hear this often. I mean, reasonably often, the, the, the technically speaking, the motion is, We'll we'll make this subject a you know subject to a special order of business you know, at the end of this calendar, at the next calendar, or at the end of the day, or for tomorrow, or something like that. And he said, I think it was you know, for for you know in thirty minutes. So we'll make this a special <laughs> order of business. We're going to do thirty minutes of other work, and then we'll get back to this bill. Uh, I guess the idea being. You didn't want to have people who were invested in those next 10 bills that could get passed in 30 minutes to have their votes on clean energy right. to held up by everybody who has a question to ask about clean energy. So let's clear the deck of stuff we think we can pass and let's let this be basically the last decision. Minutes are precious. No, no fooling. Right, yeah, right. Especially, a couple hours to the end. Right, and especially when you've agreed that you're going to break early right, and go right. have a joint oh, yeah. ceremony and so forth. So, I mean, the, the timing was peculiar in lots of ways. But uh, for, for someone who is a first-time listener trying to follow an issue, that was a really complicated one to try and keep up with. And, and Michael, what is the significance of the House sent back their version of the bill 
there were obviously components in that bill that the Senate had stripped out on the floor, Mm -hmm. right? But the Senate just receded its position. How peculiar is that to you that they just took the House's bill? There was no conference committee, no discussion. Obviously, they were running out of time. But, you know, there was some talk about, well, why are we not, you know, why are we not going to stand up for what we did here and just take their bill? Right. Uh, I mean, ultimately, with with the two sides, and we've we frequently talk about legislative leadership as if it's one entity with one mind. But the House and the Senate are frequently of different points of view about how to do things or when to do things or the specifics on how to do things. And this was one of those cases. So here it's really the House and Senate are enemies of one another, have a different vision for what this bill ought to look like and ought to do. And when you're in that circumstance, it's kind of a game of chicken. And ultimately, the clock is running down, and the House sends over a bill with meaningful changes, including they take out a piece that a supermajority of the Senate floor. And the the reason I emphasize the word floor is because it was the floor who took that vote, and it's the floor who has to make a decision. Uh, It's not a committee decision. It's a floor decision whether you accept or reject the amendments that come from the other chamber. Right. So the amendments on that bill come back and say, you all voted 33 to 13 to put this stuff in. All of the you. House takes it out. What say you? Mm-hmm. And so, all right, here they are. You know, this is a game of chicken. You're facing right toward each other, and you're <laughs> going to find out who is going to be the chicken and turn off the road. And, you know, in that analogy, the Senate ultimately said, you know what? This bill is better than no bill. So we'll take this bill. Right. And there really wasn't time. You, there, were, there was definitely not time at 930 at night to to reject this, the amendments and send it back to a conference committee yeah, and try yeah. and work it out and then re- write new amendments and do it by midnight. You couldn't do it. No. Nope. So it's either take the House's version of the bill or wait till next year. They decided – Suck it up, take this bill. And I'm sure we'll see bills about waste to energy, and we'll probably see a discussion about this nuclear study and whether that really needs to happen. That'll probably be debated next year, too. So those things can be standalone legislation. They'll be their own debate. But they wanted to get a bill on the books, so they took the House bill. Interesting there, and it certainly was interesting to to listen to that debate. And then, of course, uh, another gubernatorial veto override. The governor vetoed a bill that essentially would create oyster sanctuaries that could not be harvested. Uh, You know, you had a lot of the watermen really up in arms about this bill. The General Assembly passed that bill. The governor vetoed it. And the first order of business on signing die Mm -hmm. was to override this veto. So that was out there lingering. They took care of that as well. Yeah, Monday morning. And that's that's a a regional struggle and one that was very, very deeply felt by particularly people representing the Eastern Shore Mm -hmm. and some of the rural communities where you have a a deep waterman population. But, I mean, it it sort of pitted the active use of the waterways versus environmental protection. And I I don't claim to be steeped enough in the science to have a sense of who's right and who's wrong. Uh, the environmental community felt like this was a really important gain to make these commitments. Um, you know, the governor felt like it went too far. The Eastern shore representation felt like it went too far. Um, they override the veto. No surprise. I mean, that would, that's a running theme of this session. I lost count. I mean, I think every bill the governor vetoed in that first round got, got overridden. Correct. Now we're up to five. 
Is that right? Four or Four five? Four or five, now? yeah. So, but they're four, five for five. Um, we'll see if the governor shows up and gets his pen ready for anything else in these in these later rounds. But um, you know, it's another chapter in that same book. Okay, so those were some of the lingering issues that were hanging around on Sinai Die. They were taken care of. Now let's talk about this being the session of glasses half full. Hmm. We we have sort of. We stole this term from the Baltimore Sun, the Washington Post. They wrote great articles about this session and, and what what its legacy will be. And the big theme is that it was sort of half a loaf, right? You didn't get everything you wanted, but if you were a new, maybe progressive, younger Democrat and you came in and you had all these ideas, maybe you moved the ball forward, but at the end of the day, ended up being half a loaf or half a glass of yeah, water. Yeah, a lot, a lot of middle ground found. And you know, there's going to be different points of view about whether these are wins or losses. I mean, just mm-hmm. like that, that conversation we just had about the clean energy bill right. is a classic case. Uh, some people are going to say, look what the renewable portfolio standard is going to, you know, we're going to double our requirement over the next decade. That's a big advance. That's going to be a lot more clean energy, hip, hip, hooray. And somebody else looking at the same bill is going to say, I can't believe oh yeah, that that <laughs> giant incinerator is still getting all these incentives. And that's unbelievably terrible policy. So both of those people looking at the same bill and one of them has thumbs up and one of them has thumbs down, even though they probably believe in fundamentally the same things about clean energy and so forth. Right. So, so, you know, it's, it's, it is like the, is the glass half full is the glass half empty. There's going to be different points of view on these things. A lot of issues seem to take that shape. Perhaps the biggest is the fight for 15. This is of course, $15 minimum wage that bill passed. However, it's going to take a lot longer to get there than some people wanted. So I guess you could say glass half full. They passed fight for 15, but the devil's in the details. If you're looking at the same bill that I'm looking at, I love it. You don't love it. All right. I mean, Maryland, I mean, the headline's going to be Maryland passes $15 minimum wage. Right. right. And right. and now the, the kind of people who are inclined to have maps of the United States with certain ones colored in in certain ways, <laughs> we're now going to be one that, one of the states that's passed that bill. And now it's it's law and it's going to be, you know, phased in over some stretch of time. We'll get to 15 at some point. But yeah, <laughs> for some longer. Right. Yeah, 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 exactly. Right. So, you know, the small business piece takes it takes an extra year or whatever. But mm-hmm. but as a practical matter, that's that's another one where some people will say, I can't believe this bill got watered down so much. I wanted I wanted fifteen dollars in three or four years. Right. And it turns out it's gonna take, you know, seven or something. So and, and another issue that was watered down was the prescription drug affordability board. Natasha, you were following this one very closely. It passed, but again, mm-hmm. it's limited. So is this a glass half full or a glass half empty? Yeah, I mean, it's it made um, a significant step um, in terms of getting something passed. And um, it still creates a board that can review and look for ways to cut costs for prescription drugs. In a couple of years, they can come back to a legislative review committee um, and ask to set upper payment limits for local government and state um, uh, government, um, plans. And, um, uh, so there is something that has sure, passed. Sure. Um, certainly the people that really wanted the bill were looking for an immediate push to, we could set upper payment limits on these, um, drugs across the board. Um, the Senate on this bill was, uh, much more hesitant than the house to get something through. And so, um, this was one of those compromises. Um, and the board can 
um, after they see if they could do the prescription drugs for limits for the locals, um, certainly there's still room there in the future to do so statewide. But this was an approach that um, really set up some um, uh, maybe, um, I wouldn't call them roadblocks, but but maybe speed humps sure. <laughs> over the process. So state and local government employees, we can be the guinea pigs, right? And then if it works out, maybe they can expand it in the future. But there were always questions about whether or not this bill passed the sniff test, you know, the constitutionality of it. So it, it is watered down, but certainly it advances the issue, as you said. Mm-hmm. All right. I, I mean, I think... Maybe this is one of these t- topics that works out like our next gen 911 subject. That after a couple years of tricky legislative deliberations, you convene a group of stakeholders, you empower them to pull together the best ideas. And over some stretch of time, they come up with and they say, We think this is workable. We think this is viable. And it'll pass. You know, this is constitutional. We, here's how it's going to work. Here's how you're going to make sure that the employees aren't going to get denied a particular medicine because of a, a payment cap and so forth. But maybe you can answer those questions given some time and you come back with a convincing set of answers. Maybe you get legislators on board. So it, it may be that this is the path to solving a really, really vexing right. problem. It's a, you could look at it as a slower but steady approach. Yep. Right. Moving the ball forward there. And then, of course, guns, really not a county issue. But this session, you know, as always, there were a lot of debate about guns. This session, they did abolish the handgun review permit board, but a bill that would require background checks for private sales of long guns failed. So maybe here, if you're an advocate uh, for gun gun control, uh, maybe the glass is less than half full here because many of many of the stakeholders expected more on gun legislation. We saw a lot of moms demanding action in and around Annapolis as a, as a vocal group trying to push the long gun legislation to basically have rules that apply to handguns also apply to shotguns and rifles and, and so forth. And, um, and we saw yeah, a bunch yeah, of yeah. folks from the other side as well. Right. All, I mean, you know, and that, and so, so big, yes. yeah, big visible presence from both sets of stakeholders. Uh, but uh, I, I think, you know, I think the smart money at the start of session was that the long gun bill was going to pass. And it's a bit of a surprise, even late in session, even in the waning days of session, it looked like the Senate was going to get the bill passed. And it, it eventually made it out of committee, but with hoops and with amendments and changes and so forth. And then procedurally, there were other steps. We're seeing, we're seeing finger pointing start already by, by those who are angry that that bill didn't pass. I don't think it's the last of this debate. It's not one of these subjects where you try bill once, Go home. it fails, and you just say, okay, well, wait till the next election, see how things come out next time. Yeah, this will be back next yeah, year. Yeah, this will be back next year, very likely. And, you know, we'll see. It'll be, another, it'll be another hot debate. One that, fortunately, county governments will virtually certainly be on the sideline of. But Thank you for that. <laughs> and then um, a couple bills here that definitely less than half full for the advocates, this road widening bill. Hmm. So, this is a this has been a really hot topic, and this bill would have required an environmental and financial review of Governor Hogan's plans to widen the Capitol Beltway and I-270. The plan here, uh, you're going to widen it by two lanes in each direction by way of a public-private partnership. That way, the private contractors pay for the construction with an agreement that they will have the right to charge tolls on those new lanes. A lot of people do not like that idea. 
This bill was designed to slow that down. The bill ultimately failed, so definitely less than half full there. I mean, this 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 debate, there's a nutshell debate here that could be an entire episode of the podcast, I think. But the notion of how do you address traffic congestion? And there's there's nobody who debates that I-270 is a nightmare for people who are driving drive into the metro area in the morning and out in the afternoon. And actually, like in the waning days of session, I think 495 was shut down twice. Right. And I mean, that brought a lot of attention to this issue. Sure. So, I mean, th- this area obviously has a traffic issue. You have a giant debate about what's the right way to remedy that. And a, a huge coalition, many of whom live in around Montgomery County would say you never can extra lane your way out of congestion problems. Every time you build more lanes, it just means people feel more liberty to build houses out in Northwestern Montgomery County and in Frederick County and in Hagerstown. And you make lots of roads for those people and they'll just build more houses. If you and build you, it, yeah. they will come. Right, right. Exactly. It's the field yes. of dreams yes. there, right? Yes. Yeah. So, so, so that is always lying in the background here. So when the governor says, I want to use extra lanes, Okay, check one, controversy. Num- check number two is what's the nature of these lanes? Oh, these are going to be pay-for lanes. What do we call them? The Lexus, Lexus lanes. The Lexus lanes, right? <laughs> okay, so only the people who have like four bucks or whatever it's going to be are going to be able to use the extra lanes, and maybe they'll get to go fast, and the rest of us are stuck in the traffic on the existing Too lanes. Too bad, so sad. Okay, so, now, so that has its own differential, you know, leaves people with bad feelings about it and so mm-hmm. forth. Then – the very process of using tolls at all is tricky, but then like opt-in fast lanes has a sort of classist effect. So, okay, check number two for controversy. And then if you do it through a public-private partner, you now have said, no, oh, this company is going to do the financing. They're going to get a bunch of money up front, and they're going to get the, the rights to collect all these revenues and so forth. And you get people scratching their heads saying, well, why do we need a partner? We we can build a road. We, do we can stuff, We right? do this, right? So – you have that's another check mark. So so as far as you know, is there? It, it, could lightning strike this thing? This is the tallest lightning rod in town. The idea of you go after congestion with more roads. You do it by opt-in toll lanes for maybe just for the the people who can afford it, and you do it through a private partner. Where who knows if the process of picking the partner passes muster? I mean, everything is sideways on this, and so of course it goes nuts in Annapolis. I, I lost track of how many bills were introduced. Oh. I mean, we talked about this like it was one bill, but it was one issue with eight or ten different bills and budget language and all sorts of debate. But the, the, the transportation secretary is at hearings, and he's got a stack of environmental studies that's got to have been two feet high and so forth. And, oh, we're going to study the environmental stuff. We're going to study the finances. We're going to kick the tires on the audits for all the potential partners. It's like every angle possible. Not to mention eminent domain. Right. You know, throw that oh, in. Yeah. Oh, that's too. right. That's right. right. Yeah, that along in, the way, like, you take it anyone's house? Right. No, probably no, not. No, well, no. maybe not. What do you mean? Maybe probably. not. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. right. So anyway, the whole thing is a giant spectacle. At the end of the day, are they going to say we're not going to do anything about I-270? No, they decide not to do that. So they pulled the punch in the grand scheme. But, I mean, it's part of what the legislative process is about. Sometimes it's jumping up and down. And, and quickly, we talked about the Death with Dignity bill at length on a previous episode, but that bill did not pass. But, you know, that was under quirky circumstances. I think this could be seen as a glass half full for the advocates that were in favor of this bill, 
it's gotten further than it's ever gotten, right? And I think they could see this as a win. It's almost there. I mean, it's not, it's not a case where part of the bill passed and certain pieces got stripped out. We saw plenty of those sorts of things, and this isn't that case. But process-wise, if you're following this issue, there's reasons to think that maybe, you know, you could be optimistic. As, as, as an advocate, you may say this legislature, this term, we're going to be able to work this out. Right. Okay, so the big question, will we see a big push to the left? Or we've talked about the Senate, you know, you mentioned it, Natasha, Michael, you've mentioned it here. The Senate was reluctant to do a lot of the things that we've talked about. Will the Senate floor continue to be the main arbiter here? Or will we see that push to the left that so many uh, have have uh, prognosticated for a long time? Uh, I, th- I think it's too soon to say. I don't think the jury's really back on this yet. Um, on a number of issues that are sort of, you know, social progressive type issues, it was the Senate. The Senate was the more constricted on on the fight for 15 with a minimum wage. They put more hangers and delays on their version of the bill. So in some cases, that seems to be the case. Um Again, on the on the death with dignity bill, that that isn't exactly a a blue versus red sort of thing, but it it maps out as a tricky a tricky policy issue too. Uh, the Senate was more cautious and added a lot more safeguards in their version of the bill. Much more cautious on school funding, right? right? Yeah, that's that, yeah, that's true on, on on funding stuff too. So maybe we'll see the same thing when it comes to Kerwin and if that if there's a revenue package needed to do that and so forth. That, then again, like look at that. Look, it was the House who was more rigid on the clean energy stuff. I mean, the Senate passed their bill and for most of the session, the house said no. And then when they said yes, it was with a bunch of caveats and, and, you know, a bunch of uh, tough things for the Senate to swallow. So the, so the house wasn't willing to go along with that, whether that's a function of individual committees or the temperament temperament of the two chambers, tough to say. Um, and I mean, you also have to put a, have to put a bit of an asterisk on the house of delegates because the, the personality of the house will in part shift with new leadership in the house. So that leads us right to our, our closing topic here. What are you looking forward to? I think we're all looking forward to leadership decisions. How is this going to play out in the next few weeks? We know that we need to, that the house needs to elect a new speaker. How is that going to play out? So it sounds like, you know, I think maybe we can we can talk about this in in the next uh, next few weeks on the podcast. But it sounds like they're arranging a date for a very short special session in Annapolis to convene the House and elect a new speaker. We don't know what that'll mean for broader leadership changes and so forth. And you know, everybody's just speculating on how that might play out. Too soon to get deep into that, but but that's important for policy and 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 you know. And policy reasons and so forth. And Natasha, this the session is far from over, right? The governor still has bill signing ceremonies. The governor still may veto bills. We still have big decisions on whether or not the governor is going to fund all of the the blueprint, the, the education funding pieces of of those bills. So the session's not over, right? We're going to have these bill signings. People are going to be running around town. There's lots still to to cover. Right. I mean. Well, session's over, but certainly lingering effects. Yeah, there's still much to do in the interim. Um, I think we get particularly get asked a lot. Well, now that session's over, isn't that done for you guys? You know, you don't have any more work to do. And that's far from the truth. (laughs) Right. I wish we were going to Guam. One day. No, there there's still so much work to do in the interim, and um, you know, I I don't even exaggerate that. Literally, the day after session. 
I'm getting emails about. So about next session. <laughs> so lots of work already in Durham. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Michael, any closing thoughts? Anything else you're looking forward to around town? I just I just think, uh, I mean, Natasha's exactly right. There's there's plenty of stuff still going around in Annapolis. Um, this session is going to linger on the next few weeks with Bill signing ceremonies. That's, that's sort of a big show, and it's another, you know, reconnection opportunity. Then suddenly we'll find out they, they passed 15 bills that created commissions and task forces mm-hmm. and work groups where we need to find community you know, county people to populate and represent local governments. So if you're listening and you're in the county land and you want to be a voice for county governments, have we got a job for you? And I think Virginia White would would, uh, would kill us if we didn't mention summer conference is also on the horizon. So a lot of work to do there, too. It's coming up quick. Right. Okay, that'll do it for this episode of the Conduit Street Podcast. As always, if you enjoyed the show, please give us a like. Tell your friends. It really helps get our message out. But for now... Michael, Natasha, and Kevin signing off. We will talk to you soon.